And uh, with that, you can open in your Bible tonight to the book of Revelation, which we, Lord willing, will be finishing tonight. So Revelation chapter 22, and if you need a Bible, just uh, give some kind of indication, and one will be handed to you. Revelation chapter 22. The Bible that you hold in your hand tonight, 66 books, 40 different authors, 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses, and 788,280 words. And in its totality, it is the complete and total revelation of God to man. And it all comes down to this. Revelation chapter 22. Any author or writer or journalist or speaker or communicator knows the importance of a good conclusion. Especially if what they are writing about is is something that is passionate to them or, or something that they're passionate about, a good conclusion is important. And the reason for that is because the conclusion of anything serves to, first of all, bring finality and closure to the content and the theme of what's been shared throughout. The closure or the conclusion of a thing intends to encapsulate and also validate the entire body of the work that has been presented. And it's intended to inspire and impress the audience concerning the value of what's been spoken or shared. And the same thing is true with the Bible. As we come to chapter 22, the final chapter in the Bible... What we discover is that there is content, and there is a theme as we work through the verses. But even beyond that, as we read through this chapter and look between the lines of what is said, the Spirit of God is whispering to us a very clear and impressive message. And we'll hear that as we go through. The breakdown of the chapter is like this. Verses 1 through 7 is the final vision. The final vision that John shares with us that he saw as he received this vision from above. Verses 8 through 17 give to us the final call of God to mankind. And then verses 18 through 21, the solemn conclusion of the whole. First of all, the final vision. If you would look with me, chapter 22, verse 1, it tells us there, John says, And he showed me now a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now in the previous chapter that we looked at last week, John was given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. 
You remember the bright or the brand new earth that was created there. And then the bright new city, the new Jerusalem with all of its glory coming down from heaven and shining with that diamond like light. And John describes for us those things. And as we come now to chapter 22, he turns our attention away from the glorious attributes of the new earth. And also the ornate beauty of the new city. And he turns it now to the sustaining source of where life comes from in that new heaven, in that new earth. I find it interesting sometimes when when I look at these two chapters that are just so filled with hope. Just so, uh, you know, packed with meaning. I find it interesting sometimes the things that it doesn't say. I find it interesting that there's absolutely no mention of any structure within the city. Uh, Aside from the foundations and the wall and the street, there's no mention of any house or building or park or memorial or, 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 or any structure at all. That is completely left out altogether. And I believe that the, the, you know, the reason for that primarily is that the glory of the city it is not in what it features and what there is to look at and boast of, but the glory of the city is that the tangible presence of God will be there, that he will be there, that his presence will be thick, that we'll experience and understand and know him. That the substance of the city will not be the structure physically, but it will be the people that inhabit the city. That it isn't upon the physical, but it's upon the personal. It's such a different perspective than the way we view things on earth. And the first thing that John writes of and mentions as he talks about not the physical attributes of the city, but rather the sustaining source of it is this pure river of water of life as clear as crystal that proceeds out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now I have never personally been to the Caribbean. I've seen pictures and videos of friends that have taken photographs and videos of the waters there in the Caribbean where they tell us and we see that they are crystal clear. That you'll be riding in a boat and it will seem as though there's only two or three feet of water below you, but really it goes down maybe 20 or 30 feet and you can see clear, clean to the bottom. A sea turtle swimming beneath the boat and it's almost in HD that just the the purity and the clarity of those waters and it's something that I've always wanted to see but never had the chance yet. The clearest waters that I have seen, you know, a few years ago, the Lord blessed Georgia and I, we were able to go to Israel. And, And there in the land, I don't remember what city it's in, but there's this place that's called Gideon Springs. And it's just kind of this small little pond. I, I, I don't. Maybe it's like half a football field in size. And maybe it's like 12 to 15 feet deep. And the water there was clear as crystal. And there's something about it. When you see that water, it's so inviting. I mean, the temperature was probably 50, 60 degrees. We were there in January. But you just had to go in it. It wasn't hot, you know, it wasn't freezing either, but it was just the kind of thing where you see water like that, and it's so inviting, just the the purity and the clarity of it, that you just want to go in it. You're just drawn to it. You want to experience it. You know, it is so inviting. And here John mentions this river that proceeds out of the throne and his description, the thing that catches his eye and his attention above all else is the purity and the clarity of this water and how inviting this water 
is he finds himself drawn to it, wanting it, longing it, this water of life. I wonder as I read this and consider these things, if there's any relationship between our immersion in the water of life spiritually here on earth and our experiencing of the water of life physically and tangibly in the kingdom that's to come. See, as real and tangible as this water, this river is in heaven that John sees physically and that we will experience, you know, in reality, that same river exists today spiritually for the people of God. Not tangibly and physically, but invisibly, and it's experienced spiritually. You you ask, well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? The prophet Ezekiel describes for us a scene. As he's taken by an angel, and he's given a vision of things that are to come, and he sees this very same river, but he gives to us a very interesting perspective concerning its significance. In chapter 47 of Ezekiel, he's taken by the hand and he sees the waters of this river proceeding out from underneath the threshold of the door, inferred, it's coming from the throne of God. And the angel takes him by the hand and shows him this river and it tells us there in in verse 3 of chapter 47, it says that when the man had the line in his hand, went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. And he brought me through the waters, and he tells us that the waters were to the ankles. And then Ezekiel is brought out of the water, and verse 4 tells us that again he measured a thousand cubits and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. And again he measured a thousand, and he brought me through, and the waters were to the loins. And afterward he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? And then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. He takes Ezekiel and he brings him a span down this river, a thousand cubits. And Ezekiel discovers that it's a river so shallow that it barely covers the ankles. The feet are only thing that gets wet. A thousand cubits further down, the depth increases and it's water deep enough to cover the knees. A thousand cubits more and it comes to the waist. It buries the loins, if you would. And then a thousand cubits more and he finds that the depth of the river so dramatically increases... That it's no longer a river that the control belongs to the inhabitant. But rather the river takes control. It's waters that are over the head. Waters that have to be swam in. And then this angel brings Ezekiel back to the shore. And he infers to him that there's a message. He asks him essentially, do you get it? Do you understand what's taking place here? Do you understand the significance of this river? There's a message. Well, what is it? See, this river of God, this life, the river of life that comes from God, it's experienced by God's people. And and when you first get in, when you first taste and see of the life of God, it's a river, it's shallow, It, it gets your feet wet. You begin walking with the Lord, the feet always symbolic of the walk. And you go for a while, a span comes and goes in your relationship with the Lord, and you find that the river gets deeper. 
And, and you find that the second time, the river is deep enough. It comes to the knees. The knees in the Bible always speak of prayer. A walk turns into a talk. A dialogue, a conversation with God begins. As the growth, as the life of God begins to absorb the life of the Christian, of the believer. A span further. And it's water that covers the loins, scripturally, always speaking of reproduction. A person who walks with God and goes a little bit deeper will find themselves beginning to reproduce their faith, sharing their faith with others. Giving away, if you would, the seed of the word, that which germinates in the soil of someone else's soul and brings forth new life in them as well. But if you go a span further, you've learned to walk with God, you've learned to talk with God. You've learned to share the Lord with others. But there comes a point where if you continue, if you are going to go on with God, there's a precipice. There's a conundrum, if you would, a dilemma. There's another entry point, another experience in this river, but this one is different than the others. Because where in times past you could kind of come in and get out and kind of find your depth. You know, oh yeah, I walk with God, but I, you know, I don't pray quite so much as maybe I should. Or you say, yeah, I walk with God and I pray, but I don't like to share, you know, religion and politics, those things we just don't talk about. Or you say, yeah, I'll share my faith and I'll pray and I, I walk with God. But there is, there's a depth. There's a jump, there's a leap. There's a current, there's a tide that I'm not sure I'm ready for. Where no longer is the control of my life in my own hand. Where no longer do I steer and turn the sail or hold the wheel or the reins of my life. But where I am in over my head, if you would, in the things of God. And now I've thrown and cast my life upon him and the direction and the course of it will no longer be my own. It will belong to him and the life of God will consume me completely. And then the angel brings Ezekiel and he says, do you understand these things? And in the church today, there are Christians in various depths in the waters of their Christian experience. There are those that walk with God, those that talk with God, there are those that talk of God to others. And then there are those that have said, you know, Lord, I trust you with all my heart, with all my life. And I'm so willing to throw the reins of my life upon you that I'm willing to jump into this river and let it carry me where it will. No longer will I have control of the things. But Lord, I'm trusting you that you will govern and guide, that you will direct and fill and satisfy this life. I believe the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, that you said you know the thoughts that you have towards me, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give me a future and a hope or an expected end that you know what you're doing. I believe the words of Romans 8, 28, where the Apostle Paul said that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And Lord, hearing the whisper of your promise and feeling the pulsating of your heartbeat and knowing the depths of your love, Lord, I am willing to throw my life completely into the river of your leading, of your life, and of your love. And I wonder, I wonder if the Spirit of God would whisper to us tonight as in Revelation chapter 22, the first thing John mentions in this final chapter, he sees this river. I wonder if there's a relationship.
between how much of our lives we commit to God on earth and how great our experience will be of the waters of life in heaven. I don't know. But it's interesting, isn't it? You can read Ezekiel chapter 47. There's a lot more meat in there concerning this river and its role in the new heavens and in the new earth as you read it. But he sees, first of all, this river, this source of life. And then in verse 2, it says that in the midst of the street of it, or the midst of the street of the city, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So the second source of life within the city, not just the river of life, clear as crystal and pure, but also now the tree of life that lines the street of the city and also lines this river that proceeds from the throne of God. The national tree in the New Jerusalem will be the tree of life. You know, the national tree in New York City, and I don't know if this is officially on the books, but it should be, is the black locust. Because that's all you see when you drive down the streets or along the Hudson River or the East River. It's just black locust trees everywhere. Do you know what they're good for? Firewood. That's it. They don't do anything else. But not so in the New Jerusalem. In the New Jerusalem, it will be the tree of life. And it tells us here that it bears 12 manner of fruits. That each month it yields a different fruit that is for food and for sustenance within the, the lives of the people that are there. Ezekiel 47 also describes this. And it also tells us that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation, that there's this incredible medicinal power within these leaves of this tree. You know, it's just an awesome thing. We, we don't know much about this at all as far as what it will actually do and produce, but we know that John sees it and shares with us the magnificence of what it is and what it will be. This also raises for us a very interesting question about time as it concerns heaven. What is time like in heaven? It, it tells us here that that tree, that it yields its fruit each month. And it tells us 12 manner of fruit. So you get the impression that there are 12 months. But what does that mean in the heavenly realm? If you think about it, it's a very interesting question. Because time as we know it on earth it is in absolute relation to both our rotation the earth spinning on its axis, and also revolution, the earth turning around the sun in its course over a year. But we're talking about a complete new heaven and a complete new earth. We know that there is no revolution. No, yes, rotation. There's no spinning because there's no night there. We're going to learn that later in this chapter. And we don't know about a sun. It doesn't say anything about a sun. So how is time measured in heaven? I don't know, but I do know that there is some form of measuring time. We know that because John tells us that each month this tree bears some you know, manner of fruit in some way. It's a very interesting thing to think about. We don't know, but somehow there is time and it is measured. Well, the fruit of the tree is for food. The leaves of the tree are for healing. The first mention of the tree of life in the Bible is in the very beginning when God first created man upon the earth. After God created this garden, God put the man in the garden, and it tells us that in the midst of the garden there were two trees. There was the tree of life, 
The same tree of life that we read about here in Revelation 22. And that there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which man was forbidden, told that he should not partake of it, and that should he choose to disobey God and to partake of that fruit, that in that day that he would surely die, be cut off from the life of God. And Adam had his will to choose between these two trees. And there are some Bible scholars that, that you know, purport or propose that Adam never partook of the tree of life, that he went right for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think that's exactly how it happened. I think Adam did partake of the tree of life. I think he did partake of it, eat of it, that, that the fruit by its month or its course, whatever it produced, that Adam enjoyed it. That the leaves of the tree and whatever healing capacity he needed, it provided for him. The reason we know this is because after Adam partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and brought the curse upon himself and upon mankind, the Bible tells us that God set an angel or a cherub with a flaming sword to guard the path back to the tree of life, lest Adam should partake of that tree in a fallen state and live eternally. And so therefore, it isn't so much that Adam never partook of the tree of life, as much as it is that he was not allowed access to it, so that in God's mercy, and think, think about this, in God's mercy he would die. <laughs> that it was God's mercy that Adam would die, because what would it be like if Adam could live eternally in a fallen state. What if there was a tree of life that you and I could grow and plant and eating of its fruit and partaking of its medicine, we could live forever in perfect health, but in the fallen state that we're in. We may not experience pain or degradation physically, mentally, but the corruption of our hearts would remain eternally. And the corruption of man would just get worse and worse, spinning out of control. Even as Paul says that in the last days, the evil men will wax worse and worse. The mystery of iniquity, the depths of sin that creep into the heart like vines and wrap itself around the flesh of man and just choke it in evil and darkness. And so God in his mercy set an angel with a flaming sword so that man could not partake of that tree of life after well, the tree of life may not be on earth now, but it will be in heaven then. Interesting. Now, besides the wall, the foundations, the gates, and the street, the only two salient features of the new Jerusalem that are mentioned are this river of life mentioned in verse 1 and the tree of life that lines the street and the river there in verse 2. Interesting. Georgia and I were talking about this week, and, and we were just kind of shooting out ideas as to why. Why is there no mention of houses or buildings or mansions or any of the things that we think of when we think of this new Jerusalem? One of the things we were talking about is, what if, and, and this is just a what if, what if we get to build it? You know, what if we get to kind of design and build and, and, and develop this city that it's just kind of like a, a blank canvas for a perfect creation to do? It's just a thought. That's the teacher in me. I'm always asking why. Lord, why didn't you write about the houses? I want to know about them. You know, that kind of a thing. And it's interesting to think through, but it's interesting also that none of that is mentioned. These are the two sustaining sources of life. They're mentioned for us here in these first two verses. This pure river of water of life and the tree of life that lines the street and the river. Verse 3 goes on and he says that there shall be no more curse. 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now the good news about this city, and everything is good news about the city, is that there will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil there. That there will be no curse. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the place where the curse originated. And every bit of darkness and woe that we see in the world today is a byproduct of the curse that came upon man when he partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the famine, all of the pestilence, the disease, all of the injustice and the prejudices of man, all of the corruption, all of the lies, and everything that comes because of all of that, all of the you know, backroom deals and you know, all these things, all the things, the corruption of our own flesh, you know, body fat and bad knees and wrinkles and gray hairs and all of that, all of it is a byproduct of this curse. We constantly live under the burden of this curse. Even though we've been redeemed, we still experience it. We taste it. We smell it. We feel it. But John tells us there will be no more curse, but that the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And he tells us that his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. That no longer will, uh, you know, seeking the Lord be an experience of kind of pressing in. Do you ever kind of get that? You know, you, you want to spend time with the Lord. You wake up early and you want to hear his voice. But it just seems like there's like this huge barrier. That the fog is so thick. There's just no getting through. There's just no light today. And, and you know, you, you kind of, you know, you shut your eyes a little tighter. You know, you make your voice a little bit louder. And, you know, or maybe you sing an extra song or read an extra verse. And, and it's just like you just want to experience his presence. But it just seems like for some reason, where is he, you know? And I find myself, you know, singing that song that Lori shared tonight, that pass me not. You know, the Lord, if there's any moment today that I could just taste of you. That through the thickness of busyness and through the fog of mental gymnastics, Lord, if you could just come through, I want to know you. I want to be with you. I want to be near you today. Don't pass me by, you know. And yet we feel that, don't we? We kind of feel like the presence of the Lord kind of comes and goes. We, we feel like there are seasons, that there's summer seasons of spirituality where he's close, where his word is alive, where there's growth and fruit and ministry and blessing and all this goodness. But then all of a sudden, it's like the season just changes and everything turns cold spiritually and his voice is distant and spiritual truths become obscure. And it's kind of like this, this weird thing that we experience, you know, here on earth. The presence of God we so long for, but yet sometimes it seems so intangible. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, for now, concerning our pilgrimage on earth, he says, for now, we see through a glass darkly. The glass in the King James is a mirror, and the picture is that of when you first kind of get out of the shower, and you know, you see the mirror on the wall, and, and you, you know, you want, if you're a man, you want to shave, if you're a woman, you want to put on makeup, but you can't, because there's steam on the mirror, and so, you know, you just kind of take a towel, and you press in, you know, you kind of want to clear the mirror, but as soon as the towel pushes the steam off the glass, again, it's there again, and you get close, but you can't quite see, and it's fuzzy. You can make out an outline. You know it's there, but it's not clear enough for you to really 
tune in and, and, and get what you need to do done, you know. We see through a glass, darkly, foggy. But he says, then it will be face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. That in heaven, when the presence of the Lord is there, when we will see his face, it'll no longer be this thing where we press in and we feel like we're fighting a spiritual fight trying to get into, you know, get into his spirit. But we'll see his face. His servants will serve him. His voice will be clear. His presence will be tangible. His life will be experienced. The thing that satisfies us the most will be the thing that we get the most of. And that will be our glory in that place. And it says that there shall be no night there. And they shall need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. He says, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. John concludes, he gives us the final vision the last thing that he saw. And he signs off in a sense in verse 8 by saying, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. And he saith unto me, See, thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. John tells us that as this completion happens as he realizes that this is over he's so overwhelmed and probably overcome with thanksgiving and gratefulness that he does the only thing he can think to do and that is drop to his knees in obeisance towards this being this creature this angel and of course this is always the case when a servant of god is given such you know an honor they quickly back off and say no 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 no! don't do that worship God and and John is reminded again this is the second time he does it to turn to his feet but listen again to what he says there in verse 8 it says I John saw these things and heard them do you recall way back at the beginning I don't know if I've mentioned this verse at all yet in this study but Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 that verse where Jesus tells John to write three things. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. It's the outline of the book given there in chapter 1, verse 19, as Jesus tells John to write. And here now, as John comes to the conclusion and tells to us the last thing that he saw, he says, I have now told you all of that which I have seen and heard. I've completed the apocalypse or the revelation All that I've seen has now been reported to you. And so the final vision John gives to us there of the river, of the tree, of the conditions in heaven, the tangible, physical, thick, and real presence of God. He tells us those things. And then as we move into verse 8, we hear the final call. As now no longer John reporting on the things that he had heard, but Jesus talking to us. As he closes out, the fullness of his testimony, his revelation of himself to man. In verse 10, he 
He says, and he said unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, it's interesting that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel was given a vision that troubled him. And, you know, we recently studied Daniel, and, and, and it, he, it took his sleep from him. It was so detailed and so incredible. And, and, and yet we never find out what it is that God showed to Daniel because the angel says, seal up the vision, for it is a time for appointed, or for the time of the end, he is told. And everything in us says, well, what was it? What is it, Daniel, that you saw? Because we so want to know. Most likely, what Daniel saw was either part or whole of what we have just read as we've heard the vision of John reported to us in the book of Revelation. We infer that because he says to us, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. As if to say, it wasn't for the time then, but it is for the time now. The time is at hand. And then in verse 11, he says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now, as we read this, it almost sounds, doesn't it, as though Jesus or the angel, the revelator, is calling us into a state of neutrality. Doesn't it? I mean, you read this and he just says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust. He that is filthy, let him be filthy. But he that is holy, let him be holy. And him that is righteous, let him be righteous. And he just says this and it's almost as though you could take from this and say, ah, you know, I'm just going to, the time is at hand, the Lord is coming. And so I'm just going to retreat into a neutral state. I'm not going to worry about winning souls. I'm not going to be busy about the Lord's business. I'm just going to kind of let things ride now because Jesus is coming. It almost sounds that way, doesn't it? But that's not at all what we're being told to do. This is not a command for us to retreat into a neutral state concerning evangelism or soul winning or ministry or pursuing God. But rather, and listen carefully, this is a warning that the eternal destiny of man has been placed in the power of his decision. What do you mean? There's a clear contrast being painted here in this verse between two groups of people. On the one hand, those that are unjust and filthy, and on the other hand, those that are righteous and holy. And listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 12. He says, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In these two verses, he tells us these things. He says that he is coming, that he will be returning, even as he said to his disciples in John chapter 14, that if I go, I will come again and you know, bring you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. He reiterates the promise of his coming. I am coming. He also tells them that his reward is with him and that that reward will be distributed according to the work of every man. Now he goes on and he elaborates even further in verse 14, talking of these two groups. On the one hand, the, the unjust and filthy, and on the other hand, the righteous and holy. Listen, verse 14. He says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life 
and they may enter in through the gates of the city. In verse 14, he speaks of the reward of those that are righteous and holy. Those that are righteous and holy, spoken of back in verse 11. And he says that they will, two things, that they will have right to the tree of life and that they will enter into the gates of the city. But he describes the righteous and the holy as those that do the commandments of God, that do his commands. That is, that they are those that are pursuing a life of holiness and godliness. That they're striving to be doers of the word, striving to be obedient unto him, to sense his leading in their life, and to follow through in the thing that he's calling them to. That they have a desire to live lives that are pleasing to him, and they continually seek his empowering to do it. Not in their own strength, but in the strength of his spirit carrying and sustaining them. And it describes those that are consistently growing, that are pursuing his will for them, And he says that to them, again in verse 14, that they will have right to the tree of life and that they may enter in through the gates of the city. I don't want it to go without mention that he speaks here, the emphasis of the description of these is on the word do. If you look again there in verse 14, he says, blessed are they that do his commandments. I can't help but think of what God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel again in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 through 33. Let me read it to you. He says, Also, son of man, the children of thy people still are talking about thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people come. And they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words. But they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, you are unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, and lo, it will come, then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. He, he talks to them as those, he says, he mentions those that, that they're hearers of the word. They take pleasure in hearing the word of God. There's something that happens within them. They're lifted up. They're even bringing others and saying, come and hear what is the word of the Lord. But God says it's completely invalid. Because although they're coming, and although they're hearing, and they're entertaining the things that you're saying... Yet as they go, there is no movement in their heart to do the things that they hear. James describes those very same people as those that are hearers of the word, but not doers. They don't do the word of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. See, the reward of those that do the word called righteous and holy by the Lord is that they will be given right to the tree of life and to enter into the gates of the city. But in verse 15, he describes the rewards of those that are unjust and filthy. Look at verse 15. He says, for without, those that are left out of this inheritance, of this promise, are dogs and sorcerers 
and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. These ones that persist in unjust filthiness will not be partakers of the eternal reward. They will be left out from it. They will not enjoy. You know, it's interesting as I read this, I was thinking about when we were little. And, you know, we have little kids, so we're kind of seeing this happen. And maybe you have little kids and you see this take place. And, and there's something that happens with the smaller children. You know, they're still little, and so they often get carried. Little Sarah, my, young, or my second youngest now, she is, you know, just, just at that place where you can still pick her up and do the airplane thing. You know, where, you know, and, 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 you know, you see the others, Hosanna and Rocky, they're a little bit bigger, and they're kind of looking on like, you know, I want to do that. I want to do that. And Sarah kind of gives them a look like, yeah, you ain't getting it. You know, <laughs> you're too big. You know, and, and, and they, kind of, they, they kind of feel left out. The, the little ones, they fall asleep in the car and they get carried in the house. The big ones, they get kind of shoved a little bit. Come on, come on, get up, you know, get, get, get in bed, you know. But the little one, the little one gets carried, and you see the little eye open as the little one looks at the big ones and says, yeah, that's right, you know, I'm getting carried, you know. And they still get cuddles with the grandparents and all this stuff, and the big ones kind of look on, and the little ones rub it in a little bit. But then something happens. Summer rolls around, and you go to the carnival the amusement park. And there it is. It's that pole with the red mark at 42 inches. The swings, the tilt-a-whirl, the roller coasters, the water slides, you know. And then it's a roll reversal. It's this whole thing now where now the older ones are looking at the little ones and going, I'm going on the swings. And the little ones are going, I'm going on the swings and I can't go. And there's this whole thing. And you kind of get the same idea here. Is that, that there's this, and we experience this in this corrupted cosmos. You know, there's these two groups of people. There are those that desire to live a holy life, that pursue the things of God, that are willing to put down their flesh so that they might experience the glory of heaven in the future. And yet the world looks on in all of its filthiness and they live in their lewdness and their license, gratifying every desire of their flesh. And they look on and they say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you know. You're left out, you know. And, and you know, we really don't want to, you know. We're not in that attitude of, of even wanting that. But they look at us like we're fools. But listen, there's coming a day where we will experience the glory of God. The streets of gold eternal life, the tangible, physical presence of God, the essence of life itself, and it says that they will be left out. They didn't make the 42-inch cut, if you would, you know. But who is left out? He tells us, first of all, dogs. What is a dog? It's not speaking of Fido, you know, or Fluffy. It's talking about the nature of a man who does whatever his flesh tells him to do. That's what a dog does. A dog does whatever a dog wants to do. Whatever their impulses, whatever their drives, whatever their bodies tell them, they obey and follow those desires and drives. And he says that they will be left out. Second of all, he mentions sorcerers, that is drug users. Those that manipulate their conscience and their state of being to counterfeit a relationship with the divine or to mask the emptiness that they are experiencing that he has designed to draw them to him. Sorcerers. 
Thirdly, he mentions whoremongers, those that are sexually promiscuous or loose morally that ignore God's design for sexual pleasure, that they will have no part. And then finally, he mentions murderers, idolaters, and liars. It's all very self-explanatory. And he concludes it in verse 16, saying that I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now listen, follow me here. The point of all of this is that what he said back in verse 11 about him that is unjust and filthy and him that is righteous and holy, let them be that still. It isn't a call to neutrality, but rather it's a warning that man's eternal destination will be the byproduct of his decision. You say, are you saying or proposing to us that salvation is by works? By talking about being doers and obeyers, are you saying that we are saved by our works? Or are you saying that how I behave myself is what determines where I will end up in the end? No. That's not what I'm saying to you. I'm not saying that how you behave will determine where you end up. But what I am saying is this. That what you decide while you are on earth now concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, that will determine how you behave. And that then will determine where you end up. What you decide concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ will determine how you behave. What do you mean? Listen, God sent his son Jesus to physically pay the fine for every sin that has ever been committed, past, present, and future from the moment that he hung on that cross. Every sin of every man, woman, and child that ever was committed was laid upon him as he hung there upon that cross. And because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross, God the Father now extends an open invitation to every man, woman, and child that lives. Regardless of their age, regardless of their race, their background, how old they are, regardless of their past sin record and the things that they have done in their lives, none of that means anything concerning this invitation that God extends. And here's that invitation. That if you, as a human being, one who is alive and breathing physically upon this earth, will come to Jesus Christ by faith, knowing your need, that you have a need of him that you can't save yourself, willing to confess your guilt and lay it before him openly, willing to receive the gift that he is offering and that he is asking you if you are willing to let him pay for your sin. And if you are willing to turn from your sin, that here's what will happen. If you respond to that invitation, he will in turn transfer, listen, transfer your guilt onto his son. He will lift it off of you and he will transfer it onto his son Jesus. And in turn, he will lift the innocence off of his son and he will transfer that onto you. That is the invitation that God the Father is extending that he purchased himself when he sent his son to hang on a tree on the cross of Calvary. And that decision is extended to every man, woman, and child. Anybody, whosoever will, can come to Christ and be forgiven of their sin in absolute perfection. 
Now, in turn, if a person receives this gift and makes that decision to come to Christ, God will also then give to that person what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. And that is the invisible presence and person of God will physically move inside your mortal body. Think about that. That the living God will move in and live inside your mortal body. He can do that because you're now innocent because the innocence of Christ has been laid upon you. And when the Holy Spirit of God moves into your life at the moment you make that decision, here's what happens. First of all, the Holy Spirit, listen, he will empower you, give you the power, enable you to live a holy life. He will give you the power to live a holy life. That is, to obey the commands of Christ. Even as Jesus said, they that do his commandments, he'll give you power to obey the commandments of Christ. He will also place a desire in your life to live in a way that pleases God. Now think about that. Because the world has no desire to live their life in a way that pleases God. They want to live their life in a way that pleases self. That's the way we come from the factory. We come with a self-drive. We live to please ourselves. But when the Spirit of God moves inside of a person, something changes, and no longer do you desire to live for yourself, but there's this desire that begins to grow up from within, a desire to please God. I want to live in a way that pleases God. And if you have that, that's how you know that you're saved. Because, wait, why am I worried about what God thinks about my life? I never worried about that before unless I was scared of hell. But now I find that there's this drive in me that wasn't there before that I want to live in a way that pleases God. That's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, as he moves inside, will also give you the ability to understand the Word of God, the Bible, and an ability to learn how to hear the voice of God as he desires to speak to you. And then finally, the Holy Spirit of God, as he moves inside, will give you gifts that you can then in turn use to both glorify God and also to make God known to other people. All of that happens in the moment that you decide that you want to follow Christ with your life. Now, if those things aren't true of you, if you can't say that you are empowered to live, that doesn't mean that you're perfect and that you don't make mistakes. But if you can't say that you haven't been empowered to live a holy life, and if you can't say that you have a desire to please God with your life, and if you can't say that you can't understand the Bible, you know, at all, and if you say that there's no desire in me to make him known, then you need to question, am I really saved? Because the Bible says that when you make that decision, not only are you forgiven, but you are sealed. God, the Holy Spirit, moves into your life, and he begins to empower you to live righteously. Do you understand? Therefore, listen, when you decide to come to Christ and to commit your life to him, that decision in itself enables you to become a doer of the word. And that in turn determines and gives you the right to eat of the tree of life and to traffic on the streets of his city. So it isn't by works that we are saved. It is by the decision that we make. That we yield ourselves servants to the living God. Those that are saved and blood bought. And he then in turn empowers us to live righteously. He saves us by his grace. Now if a person decides no. I will not come to Christ. I will not allow him to rule in my life. Then you remain in your flesh. That which the Bible describes as a dog. As a whoremonger. As a sorcerer. As a liar. As a murderer. Unjust. Filthy. 
That's the way you are described in your flesh. God's not impressed with it. He doesn't think it's good. He doesn't grade it on a curve that you're better than that guy. You know, none of that matters if you're in the flesh apart from the presence of the Spirit of God living inside of you. You are excluded. You say, well, okay, well, when is that decision made? I mean, what's the point of that decision? Or when is the point of that decision? I'm glad you asked. Because in verse 17, the invitation is extended clearly. He says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. The spirit of God right now in this place is giving you the opportunity to make that decision as the spirit whispers to your heart and says, the bride, which we've already talked about as being the church, we have been given the mantle of carrying this message of inviting those on the highways and the byways to come, come to the waters and live. Him that heareth, if you hear the call of the Spirit, he says, come, and whosoever is a thirst. Whosoever of you, whosoever of man, that in your heart you sense that emptiness, that longing, that thirst that's deeper than what the physical things of this world can satisfy, he says to you, come and partake of that which truly satisfies, that which truly gives life. And then he says, whosoever will, let him come. And the point is that the choice is yours. You're invited to come. The ball is in your court. So the final call here, as we close chapter 22, and as we close out, really, a study of the whole Bible, God is telling us that the choice is yours. And he concludes with a solemn warning in verse 18, for he says, For I testify unto every one that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Listen, you do not mess with the book of Revelation. Okay, don't spiritualize it. Don't take things out of it. Don't add things to it. You just leave it alone. Take it literally. You know, you know and, and as I read this verse, I'm kind of asking myself, I'm like, wow, I just taught the book, you know. Did I add anything, you know? What's the deal here, you know? And I think that the clear thing is the manipulating of it to try to make it say something that it clearly doesn't say or to insert things in it that are not there or to impose an agenda upon someone or a stance or a viewpoint trying to twist its text in order to make your point. You don't do that. But then in verse 19, listen to the way the language changes. He says, and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Notice there in verse 18 that it words it this way. It says the words of the prophecy of this book. And it's speaking clearly of the book of Revelation that we are speaking of. But then in verse 19, he words it this way. He says the words of of the book of this prophecy, that is, the book that contains or holds this prophecy, I believe it's speaking of the whole Bible. Not just the book of Revelation singularly, but the entirety of God's revelation, that is, the whole Bible. Listen, you don't mess with the Bible. 
I would be very fearful if I was a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who willingly and deliberately take and chop and change the scriptures in order to make it fit the things that they doctrinally ascribe to. Very scary thing. You just don't mess with the Bible. Then the benediction, he says, he that testifies these things saith, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As we close, and I know it's, it's late. I said to you beginning at the beginning of the study that this chapter, this last chapter in the Bible contains both subject and content. And we saw that as we read these verses. But it also contains a very clear message, a very clear and impressive message to mankind. And that is, and this is the last thing that God wants us to be thinking about as we consider the entirety of his word to man, is that you have a decision to make. You have a choice to make. Almost every reference in this chapter alone concerns in some way a choice that we have to make. He opens the chapter talking about the river, the river that can be enjoyed at whatever depth you choose. You can choose to be a foot Christian walking, a knee Christian praying, a loin Christian sharing, or you can choose to be an immersed Christian living and flowing with the power of the Spirit of God. But the choice is yours. The second reference is that of the tree of life, the quintessential choice in the Bible that Adam had, the one tree on the left, the other on the right, choosing who would be the master of his life. Will I allow God to, 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 to govern and guide and direct and keep my life? Or will I take the knowledge of good and evil upon myself and direct my own path, make my own, chart my own course, if you would? A decision that's laid before Adam, a reference given to us. On which side do we stand? The third reference or thing in this Bible or this chapter that's put before us is that which is either unjust and filthy or that which is righteous and holy. And all of it coming down to a choice that we have to make. What is it that we will do? Well, what's at stake concerning this decision is eternity. Think about this. Eternity. Do you know how long eternity is? Somebody said one time that if a little tiny sparrow, you know, one of the smallest of all birds, was standing on the Atlantic coast with his feet dipped in the Atlantic Ocean, and that little sparrow took a beak full of salt water and slurped it up and just held it there in his beak and then began to hop wet. And he hopped there across the eastern states and he hopped across the Mississippi and then he hopped over, you know, the plains of Kansas and over the Rocky Mountains and through, you know, the great liberal state of California and onto the, you know, the, the beaches there and, and then standing there with his feet now in the shallow waves of the Pacific Ocean, he spit that little drop of water into the Pacific Ocean. And then he turned around and he hopped back through California, over the Rocky Mountains, across the plains, over the Mississippi, through the eastern states, and he went back to the Atlantic coast and he took another beak full of water. 
And he hopped back across through the eastern states and over the Mississippi River and then through the plains of Kansas and over the Rocky Mountains and through the state of liberal California and he spit the second drop of water into the Pacific Ocean. That by the time that little sparrow empties the entire Atlantic Ocean into the Pacific Ocean, the first morning of the first day of eternity will have passed. It's eternity. That's what's at stake. Maybe tonight the Spirit of God is speaking to you. You don't feel empowered to live a holy life. You don't feel that you have a drive within you to please God. You don't even care about God or what God thinks about your life. You don't even read the Bible, much less care if you understand it or hear God's voice. Perhaps for a long time you've been a hearer of the Word of God. Enjoying the expounding of the scriptures as one that hears a good song or someone that can play an instrument well, but you're far in your own life from being a doer of it, and you know it. Jesus Christ invites you tonight to make a decision. To make a choice. To come to the waters of life and live. Why will you die in your sins, he says. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Your whole head is sick from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. It's filled with putrefying sores. You sense yourself sinking into the senselessness of this world. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be white like wool. If you will heed, if you will hear. He extends the invitation. He says, listen, eternity's at stake and I've paid the debt in full. Tonight, if that's you, I invite you to come to Jesus Christ. In this final hour, this late hour of man's existence on this earth before God comes, will you give your life to him tonight? Maybe there's some of you tonight that have a different type of decision to make. You're saved. You're in and you know it. But yet you're still one that gets in and out of the river. Get your feet wet for a while. Dip your knees a little. Maybe share when it's convenient. But yet when you stand on that precipice of just casting yourself completely upon the reins of God's will for your life, it's there that you clam up and say, I just don't know. I just, I just can't. Make the plunge and absolutely surrender my life and my will to him. Listen, understand that that has an eternal stake as well. That your place and your capacity, your ability to enjoy the ages, the millions and gazillions of years to come will have a direct relation with how you surrender and live your life for Christ on this world now. And there may be some among you tonight that you say, I need to do it need to give myself to the Lord completely. I need to cast my will, my desires, my ambitions, my goals, my thing, my life at the foot of His cross and live for Him. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank You tonight for this Word. Thank You for the revelation of Jesus Christ. But not just in the pages of this 
section, but on the pages of this Bible, you have revealed yourself so fully, made yourself known so completely. And we make it our prayer tonight, Lord, that we might be those that follow you wholeheartedly.